Welcome to Breitbart News Daily, the podcast version. We have the three-hour show on SiriusXM Patriot. Uh, fantastic calls today. Thank you so much for everyone. Thanks to Stephen, Democrat Stephen calling in. And uh, I think we found some good common ground, Stephen and I. Deep down, Stephen's America first. He just hasn't admitted it yet. So uh, we spent the first two hours talking about illegal immigration and then ended the show with a wonderful guest from the Center for Immigration Studies all about parole. This is the new word that you may not hear in the lamestream. They may never use it, but this is a new tool from the Biden administration, like their manipulation of their use of asylum. They're now uh, twisting the use of parole. And this is what the senators want to reform, but they can't. It doesn't need reforming. It needs to not be manipulated or misused. It needs to not be misused. So I don't know, like, what can the Senate do it's already written perfectly. You just you need a new president is the point. You need a new president. The laws are already there. Everything's everything's fine. It just needs to be the laws need to be followed and executed. And that can only be done with a new president. So, anyway, talked about that for 2 hours great phone calls. I want to play for you here though our uh, third hour, the beginning of the third hour where we talked about the president of Harvard leaving and tied that into immigration. Because it really is connected. It's all the same. When you deal with principles, it's all the same. Here's that segment. We'll play a fun game here. Let's see if we can talk about the president of Harvard resigning, getting kicked out, and then bring it around to illegal immigration. Because when you deal with principles, everything's connected. So we'll see if we can do that. Because we have a guest, uh, an expert coming up at 8.30 to talk about parole. This is the new word that most people will never hear because it's the, they get their news from the lame stream. But you go to Breitbart.com, so you're going to hear all about parole because that's what the real battle is all about with this uh, new spending bill coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, the, what the Republicans in the House want is to reform parole for illegal immigrants. So uh, we will explain all that with the parole expert coming up uh, in 25 minutes here. Uh, but let's see if we can get there in a, in a fun roundabout way. So the president of Harvard has resigned, Claudine Gay. Uh, let's play this clip first from CNN. These plagiarism allegations uh, where Claudine Gay has had to issue corrections, um, multiple corrections. Now, we should note that um, Claudine Gay has not been accused of stealing anyone's ideas in any of her writings. Uh, she's been accused of sort of a, more like a copying uh, other people's writings without attribution. So it's been more sloppy attribution than stealing anyone's ideas. But nonetheless, you, you put oh, all that's so good. Uh, someone wrote in the comments, they said, yes, mostly peaceful attribution. Mostly peaceful. Copying other people's writings without attribution. If only we had a word for that. Ugh, can't think of one. Man, someone should invent one. So good. Now listen, uh, just to be very clear, I don't care anything about this woman. I don't care anything about her PhD thesis. I'm a little curious what it's about, though. And that is, I think that is a testament to the media that no one's like, well, what's it about? What's her PhD thesis about that she stole? But uh, it's just another example of, at the very least, the people in charge, the elites, changing words 
Uh, hypocrisy, of course. Good enough for me, not for thee. And uh, they're all a bunch of hacks. The fraud has been exposed, as if there were any doubt left. This is Keith Boykin, former White House aide and National Black Justice Coalition co-founder. He said, if we're going to start scrutinizing every detail of college presidents' past writings for technical attribution issues, (laughs) plagiarism, then let's do it. Let's go look at everyone's past writings, not just Claudine Gay at Harvard. Let's put them all under a microscope and see how they hold up. Um, Okay. Sounds great. And it's, uh, like, definitely do that. This is a great, a great defense from the left. Well, everyone plagiarizes. So here's the real question about Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. You're, are you with everyone? We're on the same page here about her. She's, she's it was, it was president of UPenn, MIT, Harvard. They were in front of that House committee, and they could not get themselves to say that, saying uh, uh, we should genocide the Jews violates a harassment policy. Other school campuses. So the president of UPenn and now the president of Harvard has resigned. The surprise is that the president of Harvard resigned because she's black. So there was like a lot riding on affirmative action when it came to her as opposed to the UPenn president. And the president of MIT still stands. So we'll see much longer she can last. She's more like a grandmother, though. So it's harder optically to go after her. Plus, I don't know if she's a plagiarist or not, too. That's the other thing. So the real question about Claudine Gay isn't why she left. It's how she was ever hired as president in the first place. She may be one of the great diversity hires of all time. I'd like to see a list of the top, but she'd be up there, no question. Here's Brett Stevens of the New York Times. I'm, I'm, I'm attributing, I'm attri- attributing or attributing? I'm attributing right here. How did someone with a scholarly record as thin as hers, she's not written a single book and has published only 11 journal articles in the last 26 years, and made no seminal contributions to her field. How did she reach the pinnacle of American academia? You really don't know, Brett? We did a side-by-side analysis of uh, one of the previous presidents of Harvard, Larry Summers. He was like the head of the World Bank, the Treasury Secretary. He wrote 100 scholarly articles, like 20 books. (laughs) And it's like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. He's like, this woman did none of that. He said, uh, the answer, I think, is this. Where there used to be a pinnacle, there's now a crater. And it was created when the social justice model of higher education, currently centered on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, are heavily invested in the administrative side of the university. They blew up the excellence model, centered on the ideal of intellectual merit and chiefly concerned with knowledge, discovery, and the free and vigorous contest of ideas. Yeah, of course. She's the diversity hire. This is not tricky. Uh, the very first sentence of the Harvard Crimson, the Harvard newspaper, when she was hired, by the way, shortest tenure of any Harvard president ever, in 388 years. Uh, the very first sentence, Claudine Gay took office as the 30th president of Harvard University, becoming the first person of color to lead the country's oldest institution. So that's like the, the very first, the most important thing about her, her name and then her skin color. 47 blatant examples of plagiarism, or as they call it now, insufficient citations. Now don't get too excited. 
There's another person right behind her. They're all the same. The universities are completely taken over, completely infested. There's just a handful of conservative professors in the entire faculty at all these top schools. No way they will become the president. Uh, these schools are not able to be reformed. Uh, it's, it's, it's too much critical mass. It's too much. The system is too penetrated. There's, like, there's, no, there's no one even to reform. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if it was 60% crazy liberal and 40% conservative, you'd have like some sort of critical mass. that you. Or there's, there's, there are no conservatives on these campuses. So you, you cannot reform it. There's no one even there to do the reforming. There's just a conveyor belt of people just like Claudine Gay behind her, all frauds in their own way. Yesterday, we went over a list of, of 12 principles of civil and just government. And they were based off of Russell Kirk's 10 conservative principles. Russell Kirk, known as the father of American conservatism. Uh, and I just want to read number one here. Number one seems relevant to this conversation. And this is where we pivot to immigration. Uh, he said, first, this is the first, print, the first conservative principle. He said, first, the conservative believes that there exists an enduring moral order. That order is made for man and made, man is made for it. Human nature is constant and moral truths are permanent. This word order signifies harmony. There are two aspects or types of order, the inner order of the soul and the outer order of the commonwealth. 25 centuries ago, Plato taught this doctrine, but even the educated nowadays find it difficult to understand. So, by the way, plagiarizing your PhD thesis would be a disharmony of the soul, for example basing your entire career off of constant stealing of people's ideas and plagiarizing, that is disharmony of the soul. The, order, the, uh, the problem of order has been a principal concern of conservatives ever since conservative became a term in politics, says Russell Kirk. Our 20th century world has experienced the hideous consequences of the collapse of belief in a moral order. Like the atrocities and disasters of Greece in the 5th century BC, the ruin of of great nations in our century shows us the pit into which fall societies that mistake clever self-interest or ingenious social controls for pleasing alternatives to an old-fangled moral order. It has been said by liberal intellectuals that the conservative believes all, questions, social, uh, all social questions at heart to be questions of private morality. Properly understood, this statement is quite true. A society in which men and women are governed by belief in an enduring moral order, by a strong sense of right and wrong, by personal convictions about justice and honor, will be a good society, whatever political machinery it may utilize. While a society in which men and women are morally adrift, ignorant of norms, and intent chiefly upon gratification of appetites, will be a bad society, no matter how many people vote and no matter how liberal its formal constitution may be. So this one sentence right here, uh, a society by which men and women are governed by belief in an enduring moral order, by a strong sense of right and wrong, and by personal convictions about justice and honor, will be a good society. We had a caller calling earlier, Mac, I think from Michigan, and he said, "Slater, listen, I'm just, uh, I'm, uh, oh, and I, as my spidey senses went up as soon as he said just. I'm just. I hate the word just. I'm just a political layman. But, and then went on to make like a brilliant point. And I'm like, hey man, why did you call yourself a layman? And he's like, oh, well, I'm not as smart as you all. So he said, you all on SiriusXM, on, on Patriot, like I'm not as smart as you all. And he's like, man, I went into a whole thing I'm not going to do here, but when this whole thing about wisdom. 
Like, you, you didn't read Russell Kirk's conservative principles the other day. Like, whatever, man. You already know it. You already know these 10 conservative principles. You know them already. They're written on your heart. They're who you are. You already believe in an enduring moral order. Maybe you can't articulate it as well as Russell Kirk can. But I would argue you, Mac, and you listening now, you have that strong sense of right and wrong, even maybe more than Russell Kirk, even if you can't articulate it. And my, my, my job is to help us all articulate it. Like when I read Russell Kirk, like he helps me articulate it. Like I don't even know how to articulate this stuff properly. So he helps me articulate it. I share it with you. And my job is to encourage you to, to continue to live it and then spread the word. But you already have that strong sense of right and wrong. You already have that personal conviction about justice and honor. And you apply it to everything. That's why you apply it to the border. You understand the enduring moral order of our nation and what that means with immigration. You have a strong sense of right and wrong. You understand justice and honor. It's already there. So no more, no more I'm Justa. Right? That's why I always do that joke of, oh, I'm just a truck driver. Right? That's what these people think, think. That's what they think you are. Don't you go thinking you're that. Maybe you can't write as eloquently as Russell Kirk's 10 conservative principles. Sure, whatever. Neither can I. But you know it. You have the wisdom. We quoted Proverbs earlier, but let's move on. These intellectuals at Harvard, they don't believe in a moral order. They don't believe in right and wrong. That's why they can say, oh, it's an inconsistent citation. Like, no, you stole. <laughs> you stole from it. They don't believe human nature is constant. They don't believe in moral truths that are, that are permanent. They dismiss the old-fangled moral order. What does fangled mean? Fangled. Fashion. Fangle is a fashion. So they, they, they dismiss the old fangled moral order. They believe they have a new fangled moral order where there is no morality at all. Who's to say? So don't be deceived by their tricks. And the truth is they think they're better than you. That's the, that's the, <laughs> that's the real root of it. That's why they say you're justa. The whole point of going to Yale is to prove that you're better than everyone else. That's the point of it. Yaleys have a thing where if you ask them, if there's any Yale grads listening now can attest to this. This is, this is how it works, right? <clears throat> Someone asks a Yale grad, uh, hey, where did you go to college? And here's what the Yale grad says. Ready for this? Ready for obnoxiousness? It's one of the most obnoxious things I've ever heard in my life. The Yale grad says, oh, I went to school in Connecticut. Because here's, here's how it goes next. <clears throat> oh, you went to school in Connecticut? Where in Connecticut? Yale. It, there's a setup. There's a buildup and a setup and a slam down on it. Because Yale's like, it's like one syllable. It's like, boom. Yale. And the, the point is it's to hit, it's a setup and it, and it hits you like a ton of bricks. That's the point of it. It is obnoxious on purpose. 
And if you walk around the Yale campus more so than, than it's different than any other. Like if you go to whatever, some SEC school, they're, they're wearing their uh, the, the school name because they love the football team. You walk around Yale and they wear it on the, they wear Yale, everything, Yale, Yale sweatshirts all the time, Yale, everything. It's, it's a sign. It's, it's a, it's their identity. It's a sign on my chest that says I'm better than everyone else. There's a TikTok going around of a Yale student uh, saying that the moment there, there was a particular moment that Yale radicalized her and it was at the Yale first year holiday dinner. So the first year dinner, a holiday dinner, Christmas dinner, it's of course not Christmas dinner, holiday dinner. It's, uh, it's in the main dining hall, which looks like Hogwarts and it's black tie and it is as extravagant as you could ever, it's, it's huge ice sculptures, towers of food, uh, they, they they have a parade of <laughs> they have a parade of food where they have like these long planks with with food displayed beautifully all down the plank and it's it's carried in over the shoulders of the slaves who work there it's like the hunger games it's like the capital the hunger games and people are dressed up in these massive gowns and and like it's like one of those parties that you've maybe seen where they have like uh, I've never been to where like like the food is on the people <laughs> like the, the, like people are the platters. You know what I mean? It's like like flagrant extravagance. And it should offend anyone to their core. And when you go to this holiday dinner, there's two there's two groups of people. Uh one group is like, "Yes. I am amazing. I deserve this. I am better than everyone else." And then there's the group who are like, oh, this is like, I can't even, I shouldn't even be here. <laughs> this is like, just like wrong. And if you put those people in two different rooms, uh, well, the one room would just keep partying and the other room would be very small <laughs> because not many people uh, have that reaction. But the people who are offended, here's what's also interesting. The people who are offended by that extravagance, they split, they either become Marxists or conservatives. And it's one of these weird moments where uh, the political spectrum isn't a line, it's a circle. And I had this moment once, I was, in a, I was in a Whole Foods in Sedona, Arizona. And it was right, it was during COVID and I didn't wear a mask. And the only other people there who weren't wearing a mask was this, this gay couple with tattoos and piercings and green hair, these two women. And uh, we bonded. I distinctly remember where we were standing. We were bonded over how horrible masks are and how horrible the tyrants are who are forcing them on us and our children and how they deserve to burn. <laughs> and we had this conversation, me and these, these two gals, and um, I left and I was like, wow, that was weird. That was really weird. We like, are on the same page <laughs> with this thing. We don't like, agree on anything probably, but we totally do on this. It was really cool. So like, this woman's reaction, this Yale student, her reaction was to go full-blown Marxist. And she says, it's like full on, and she says this dinner radicalized her. Because she realized that these Ivy League schools are just hedge funds and Yale's just a giant landlord. Yale owns like a huge portion of the property of New Haven and they don't pay taxes on that because they're, they're a school. So they've been shamed into donating some money to the city, but like that's just to pat themselves on the back. So Yale talks this big game about being, you know, 
citizens of the world and we serve the world and you know we're an Ivy League school and we help and blah 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 and they take advantage of the city they live in where 25% of New Haven lives in poverty 25% of the city that the school's in is in poverty like you don't go across the street you don't leave campus and here's my real pivot this is uh, part of the clip or I, no I mentioned this clip excuse me I mentioned this clip on yesterday's show and I, I found it I found the actual audio he's talking about politicians but apply this to academia, right? Apply this to Harvard and Yale and all these higher education schools and also apply this to um, illegal immigration. And when you talk to them, last thing I'll say, like you know that, like I, I've gotten so old and crazy that I just assess people on the basis of their relationships at this point. And if your wife doesn't respect you and love you, and if your kids don't respect you, and if your employees think you're horrible, and you don't tip the waitress, I'm not your friend. And I mean that. Like that's who knows you, is the people in your immediate orbit. And we believe this so much in my house that we don't even give to charity anymore. Any, any, any nonprofit charity, period. We haven't taken a tax deduction on a charitable contribution in a long time, and my wife is a fervent Christian, so we're giving 10%. But we give it all the people we know in our orbit. And so my view is, you know, I'm sure Feed the Children is a great charity or whatever. There are a million of them. But does my housekeeper need a new car? How could I possibly justify giving mosquito nets to kids in Congo if my housekeeper's in need? I mean that. I, I couldn't. And that's a reflection of my view that you're put on this earth to serve the people right around you. And any time someone talks about effective altruism or helping people he's never met and never will meet, and the consequence of that help will never be recorded, and he doesn't even care what those consequences are, that's the most dangerous person in the world. Because his giving, his charity, is totally disconnected from actual people. And so when this effect of altruism insanity, which is totally evil, came out, it's evil masquerading as good, it always is, this came out, we're going to help, we're going to maximize our effective... Headline, I'm a very good person, much better than you. No, you're probably, in fact, you're certainly a horrible person. And by the way, give me your wife's text. I want to find out what she thinks of you. And 100% she has contempt for him because he's a crappy husband, because he's a crappy man, because he's ignoring the people around him in favor of helping people whose names he doesn't know in order to self-aggrandize. That's just a syndrome. As my father used to say when I was growing up about the Soviets, they loved the people but hated people. And that is an absolute thing. And you see it on the left. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be partisan because I hate the Republicans so much. I, I almost don't want to make any partisan statements at all because I hate them all. But you, it is a feature of the left. I'm giving my life over to the people. Really, which people? Where, do you have their addresses? How are they doing? They don't care. It's totally abstract. There's no such thing as abstract love. You can't love any group of people. In fact, I don't even believe in groups of people. It's all a lie. There are people with names and fingerprints and unique histories and desires and weaknesses that need bolstering. Like they're individuals and that's all there is. God doesn't create groups of people at once. No woman ever gave birth to a community. <laughs> so that's what the Ivy Leaguers are. It's self-aggrandizement in the name of helping others, but they ignore the people all around them. 
because it's all about getting to the top. Even if you got to cheat and steal your way there like Claudia Gay did. Now, just to wrap up that Yale student who said she was radicalized. She, the problem is she's never, she's never heard of Thomas Sowell. She's never heard of Russell Kirk. She's never heard of Andrew Breitbart, right? So she only knows that there is the Marxist direction. And it's one of our jobs to be there when the normie gets radicalized so that they can become radicalized in our direction. (laughs) And because the goal is to get people to start caring about the people around them. And that's what, that's, that's Stephen earlier. I, I, I want people to care about the people around them. And like we do, of course, like Stephen cares about his kids more than other kids, like obviously, but then jumps to hypothetical people as opposed to the actual people in his neighborhood and his circle. Uh, we talked to someone from Hillsdale. His name's escaping me. Ah, excuse me. Uh, oh, oh in, inaccurate attribution. Uh, I was someone from Hillsdale. I forget his name. And he talked about the concentric circles and how the conservative concentric circle is individual first, then family, then neighborhood, and then it grows out from there. Uh, the state, country, and uh, the the um, we go we go in and out to out, and the progressives go from the out. They start with global citizens, and then they go in closer and closer and closer, and uh, end with people or themselves. And that's why their lives are often very screwed up. But it's perhaps a different story. I guess my conclusion is I think you understand the tie-in with immigration. Uh, if you want to be a good person should be our main goal that's russell kirk's main priority if you want to be a good person the middle of that concentric circle what tucker carlson's talking about there if you want to be a good person your degree has nothing to do with it it's how you treat the people around you and don't let anyone fool you into thinking that they're a good person because they care about the people Welcome back to Breitbart News Daily. Again, the, the term that you may not hear in the lame stream, but you will on Breitbart.com is parole. This is the new tool from the Biden administration. Well, they've been using it for a while, but uh, they'll be using it much more here uh, moving forward. Parole. What is it? Where does it come from? Here it is. Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. Mr. Arthur, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, and thanks so much for having me this morning. Really, really good to talk to you. We have a ton to talk about here. You've written wonderful things lately uh, at Center for Immigration, CIS.org. Let's start off with the the main reason I wanted to chat with you, and and that is um, parole. So we've heard a lot about asylum, and I think we're all up to pretty much up to date on how that's a giant fraud uh, and how that's being manipulated and and spun and loopholed. Um, but this is a new term that we haven't, I've never heard applied to illegal immigration. So what is parole? Give us the history of this. Sure. Really quickly, uh, back in 1952, when Congress wrote the Immigration Nationality Act, they wanted to give the attorney general who was in charge of immigration and the ability to allow aliens who were inadmissible to the United States, didn't have proper documents or, you know, there was something else that was keeping them from entering the United States to enter the United States without being admitted. 
but they had a very select group of people in mind, primarily individuals who needed emergency medical care or people who were needed as defendants or witnesses in criminal hearings in the United States. And the numbers reflected that. We, you know, we saw a handful of people every year who would be allowed in under this very limited parole power. So real quick, so, so, you, so literally, literally handful of people? Yeah, literally a handful of people. You know, it would, it would generally be fewer than a thousand people per year. However, various administrations, Republican and Democrat, would occasionally use this parole power to bring in large numbers of people who weren't otherwise admissible to the United States. Think about the Vietnamese boat people uh, in you know 1975, 1976. Groups of people like that, very sympathetic populations. Who would be resettled in the United States, and then Congress would, you know, come through and they would give them some sort of permanent status once they were here. And that's it. because of those abuses, Congress in 1996, you know, dropped the hammer on the executive branch with respect to that parole power, and they, you know, clarified the terms. It's supposed to be only for urgent humanitarian reasons, again, medical treatment or significant public benefit, because we need you as a defendant or we need you as a witness at a criminal uh, hearing. Fast forward to the Biden administration, more than 1.4 million people as of October had been allowed into the United States under that parole authority. And that increases by about 74,000 people per month. And that's even after a federal judge uh, in Florida, in a case called uh, Florida versus United States, dropped a hammer on them and told them to stop releasing people who entered the United States illegally at the border on this very limited parole power. So, yeah, part of the reason why you hear parole talked about in, you know, these Senate debates is this is one of those things that, yes, prior presidents have uh, abused, but not to the scale that the Biden administration has. And let me tell you one more thing about parole. If you enter the United States on parole, you get work authorization and your place on a path to get uh, public benefits, means tested public benefits, Medicare, food, st- food stamps. Uh, you know, uh, welfare. So, you know, this is a, uh, and again, remember, this was supposed to be a very small class of people. When you expand it to 1.4 million, which is bigger than the number of states, you're really talking about uh, significant abuses of the immigration laws to create this separate immigration system outside the one that Congress yeah. has created. So it seems like from, from their perspective, uh, parole is a better tool than even asylum. Right, because because yeah, well, and the two sort of the two sort of work hand in hand because the way that the Biden administration envisioned this was we're going to allow all of these people into the United States on parole. They'll be here for a year, two years, ten years, uh, and during that period of time, they can then turn around and apply for asylum. They'll have mm-hmm. work authorization. Uh, they're going to you know be put on a path to get means tested public benefits. I mean, from their perspective, from that, you know, sort of open borders perspective that they have, this is the perfect tool, which is why it's become the focus of the Senate uh, Senate negotiations, which is why H.R. 2, uh, the House bill, Secure Our Borders Act, uh, needs to tamp down on those abuses and why the White House is pushing so hard not to limit the president's parole authority. Yeah, that, that's why if you go to CIS.org and Breitbart.com, it's really the only the two places you're ever going to really hear the word parole. Uh, because that's what the big debate is about right now is this, this concept of parole. I got one more question specifically about it, and then I want to get to the law itself or the, the new law and everything. 
Um, so this sentence, where's this sentence from? Aliens whose continued detention is not in the public interest. How has that been spun around? Well, and, you know, that actually uh, goes back to uh, the early Reagan administration. Uh, the Carter administration, for those of you who are too young to remember, uh, had a large number of people coming from Cuba and Haiti on boats. This was the, you know, Marielle boat lift. If anybody's ever seen Scarface, that's how that movie starts. President Carter basically wanted to allow every Cuban and every Haitian that could get on a boat and come to South Florida into the United States. President Reagan showed up. He's like, look, this is an abuse. This is dangerous. We can't you know, be allowing all these people into the United States and crack down, you know, stopped releasing those people into the United States on parole as uh, the Carter administration had been doing. That was another example of the abuses that I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, a group of uh, a class of plaintiffs went to court and they challenged these Reagan uh, detention uh, requirements. Back then, by the way, if you entered illegally, there was no requirement that you be detained. There is actually a requirement that the Biden administration ignores that you be detained uh, today. But um, a federal judge said, look, I'm going to give you 30 days to actually write rules for who gets paroled into the United States. And they, you know, the uh, DOJ, INS, Immigration Naturalization Service at the time, in two in a two week period, you know, created this regulation uh, in response to that court order. And it followed pretty much what I said before. People who are, you know, have emergency medical uh, need emergency medical treatment who are coming as defendants in criminal proceedings. And then there was this catch-all for where continued detention is not in the public benefit. Again, this was a, a very – it was a slapdash regulation that was thrown together in response uh, to that court order. The Biden administration has taken that one single paragraph and completely perverted it. And their attitude is if we don't have enough detention space, then continued detention is not in the public interest. Yeah. But at the same time, as you're aware – President Biden keeps going back to Congress in each congressional budget request and asking for less detention space. It's about 34,000 beds per day right now. The Biden administration wants to take that down to 25,000 because in reality, the Biden administration thinks that it's unfair, unjust, in some way uh, discriminatory to actually detain people who enter the United States illegally. So they've taken that single line that was written in 1982 uh, in, you know, in a two-week period in a very haphazard way to allow those 1.4 million people into the United States. The history of this is just, you know, astounding when you think yeah. about it. It's not good governance at all. And when Congress changed the law in 1996, uh, the Clinton administration never changed the rule. It never, you know, changed the regulation to comply with those new restrictions that Congress has put in, which is why these abuses are allowed to continue. In fact, back in March of 2022, the Biden administration took that single sentence, again, that was written in a two-week period, and expanded it to a whole group of new people who were showing up at the border illegally. Hmm. Um, we're talking with Andrew Arthur resident fellow in law and policy for the Center for Immigration Studies. So we had someone call in earlier, and this ties to the the congressional battle that's going on here now in the Senate, as you mentioned, about this word parole and et cetera. cetera. And this guy said, well, what what can the president do? I think was his question. And and my point was, it's all about the president now. So please correct me if I'm wrong. Like my, my, My understanding is that 
all the laws are there. The laws are on the books. We have it. You just need someone to execute the laws uh, with the border. Do you find that to be, is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, and in fact, there is an ongoing case at the uh, southwest border right now. Uh, Texas Department of Public Safety is putting concertina wire along the border. You've probably seen these pictures. Uh, and Border Patrol, uh, under the uh, guidance of the White House, wants to cut through that wire to allow people to enter the United States illegally. And in finding in favor of the Biden administration in that case, the judge actually said the immigration laws are dysfunctional, but they would work if they were actually uh, implemented as written. Mm. So, you know, the president has all the power that he needs right now to control the border. We saw this under the Trump administration, but more significantly, we saw this under the uh, Obama administration. President Obama, President Trump actually did a very good job of controlling the border. You know, they used all those authorities that they had. They detained people. Uh, you know, President Trump, of course, used remain in Mexico. He has the authority to send people back to Mexico to await their asylum hearing. Uh, but the Biden administration has abandoned all of that. You think of it like a uh, a car that has a governor on it. You take the governor off of it, and you, you know, you, you rev it up. Uh, and you take the brakes off, and that's exactly what we're seeing. That car will work fine, but yeah. you have to use the car the way that it was meant to be used. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. The Biden administration deliberately abuses those authorities. Uh, Trump did an interview with uh, Breitbart.com the other day, and he said that uh, the Biden administration got rolled when they were in Mexico just the other day, uh, and, and that Biden doesn't understand the leverage that we have over Mexico, and we just went there hat in hand were the terms that he used. Um, what happened in Mexico the other day? So um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas literally went two days after Christmas, if you can imagine how desperate the White House is right now, uh, down to talk to uh, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico, fiery populist, to ask him to secure his southern border so that we can cut off the number of people from third countries, everything south of Mexico coming to the United States, and they came back with less than nothing. Enrolled is the term that I used when I talked about this in the New York Post the other day, uh, because, you know, the readout from that meeting, you know, said, oh, we agreed that we need to give more money to countries to address the root causes of, uh, of illegal migration, which is a way of saying that we need to give more money to corrupt governments. And, you know, uh, we both agreed that uh, uh, legalization pathways for you know, people in the United States are important, which is code for amnesty. So rather than coming back with any promises from uh, President Lopez Obrador, who's known as AMLO, very popular man in Mexico, um, you know, that we would act, that they would actually do anything on the Mexican side to control legal immigration, they actually were forced to you know, say, you know, well, we, we need to have amnesty and we need to send more money to Haiti, more money to Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua to address corruption, which, of course, you know, giving money to a corrupt government simply breeds more corruption. Wow. That, that, so that was the big takeaway? That's what we accomplished? That was exactly what we accomplished. There was nothing more in the White House readout. No promises from uh, President Lopez Obrador. But, you know, let me just go back to the Trump administration. Uh, in June of uh, 2019, we were faced with, you know, a, a surge in family units, as we call them, adults showing up with kids at the southwest border. And the Trump administration, you know, wanted to respond to that, wanted to bring those numbers down. 
they used uh, the threat of tariffs on Mexican goods, and we are Mexico's biggest trading partner, uh, to you know get the Mexican government to send its National Guard down to the Guatemalan border to stop people from getting into Mexico. If they can't get into Mexico, they can't get into the United States. Uh, and he did that very successfully. You saw the numbers drop from you know more than 100,000 in May to about 40,000 by October. So, you know, President Trump has shown he could do it. And again, President Obama showed he could do it. But the Biden administration lacks uh, its own convictions with respect to that authority. And again, I think that many in the administration take a paternalistic view of Mexico, which is the world's 17th largest economy. It's only a poor country because of the corruption uh, in places. Uh, to you know, actually force change. If the if the Biden administration would just follow any page from that Trump playbook, much of this uh, crisis would be resolved. They won't they they won't even take a sentence from a single page in order to bring about the results that President Trump brought. Hold on, the thing you said about Mexico is very interesting. So I'm looking at it up here. This, uh, this is GDP. I have it here at Wikipedia. Uh, it says Mexico is the twelfth highest GDP. You said 17, whatever. Like that's yeah, I thought it was, way higher yeah, than I thought. Yeah. Mexico <laughs> was blessed with uh, a huge agricultural sector. Of course, it's got oil. Uh, Pemex is a major company down there in tourism. Mexico, you know, uh, Porfirio Diaz, who was uh, president of Mexico at the turn of the uh, 20th century, once said, poor Mexico so far from God and so close to the United States. But, you know, that script has very much been flipped. It's that proximity to the United States that gives Mexico an economic advantage compared to other countries in the world. Uh, And again, you know, I rely on the CIA fact book uh, figures for GDP, which are slightly different. Well, whatever. Yeah, I don't even know um, what this is. I'm trusting Wikipedia here. Um, But but they're right up there. So it's it's number in this list. Canada is 10. So Canada and then Russia, Mexico. South Korea, Australia, Spain. So Mexico is right there. So yeah, this idea that this, so the reason brought up is this paternalistic view of Mexico. Well, what does that mean? And how should we be treating Mexico based off the reality as opposed to our perception? Mexico is a, uh, it's a rich country. Uh, you know, they, they have rule of law issues and we could talk for two hours about why they have rule of law issues in Mexico. But, you know, the, the Mexican economy is strong. They have the ability to provide asylum for uh, all of those people who are coming to the United States seeking asylum. Their asylum laws are actually much more generous than U.S. asylum laws. And this fact is going to blow your mind. When you look at countries and asylum applications, Mexico is number three on the list after only the United States and Germany. So, you know, they are a country that has signed on to the same international agreements that we have with respect to asylum. Again, their law is actually more generous as it relates to asylum than U.S. law. But people deliberately bypass Mexico because they want to come to the United States. Uh, You know, they want to, you know, come here. They want to take advantage of our public schools, you know, the free medical care that you get in emergency rooms, things like that. Well, we're definitely better Uh, than Mexico. what well, I, we only got about only about two or three minutes. I got two questions, so sorry to do this to you. Uh, uh, the first one is: so, what can Congress do if if so much of this relies on the the will and execution of the executive branch? What could Congress even do in this upcoming battle here? That is any significance at all? Yeah, I mean, there are two things that Congress can do. 
One is, you know, they can tighten up the laws even more. But as we've seen before, the Biden administration is going to uh, ignore, you know, any restrictions that they put on the president's uh, power. They're just going to, you know, do a, an end run around it. The most important power that Congress has is the power of the purse. Congress has the ability to, you know, defund programs it doesn't like, like parole. It can basically, you know, give the administration zero money for parole. And if they, you know, attempt to parole people, it's a violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act, which carries criminal penalties. Um, but they can fund the programs that they do like. They can fund additional uh, detention space. They can fund, um, you know, additional enforcement. They can actually put restrictions on the president's ability not to enforce the immigration laws. And it's that power that Congress needs to find if we're ever going to find our way out of this problem. Uh, only about a minute. What are these safe mobility offices that uh, no one really seems to know what they are in countries to our south? Do you have any clue? Yeah. And, you know, uh, my uh, colleague Todd Benzman, who actually you know does a lot of work in Central America, has been down there. And these are, you know, internationally funded and to some degree U.S. funded offices that facilitate the movement of migrants throughout, uh, you know, Central and South America. Uh, when you, you know, if you think about it, the U.S. taxpayer is getting it from every which direction. When folks get here, we have increased municipal costs. When they're down there, we're basically funding their movement uh, through various international organizations and NGOs throughout. Uh, Central and South America. So it's time to put a stop to all this. And, you know, the NGO thing is another thing that is on the table uh, in congressional talks. If this bill ever makes it to the House, believe me, non-governmental organizations is going to become the new parole. It's a catchphrase that you're going to hear. Okay. Hopefully we can uh, work together on that. Andrew Arthur, Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. Mr. Arthur, great to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Listen, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, keep up the great work. Uh, Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily, spread the word. I'm American made. I got American parts. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. So much we didn't get to on this topic. We'll do it tomorrow. We have to talk about culture. We have to talk about, oh, it's tomorrow, Thursday, too. Uh, is that right? See, with no, with no Monday, you know, I like not having Mondays. Everyone's always like, oh, I wish we had Friday off. No, no, you want Monday off because then the week flies by. So it's Thursday. So Dr. Sebastian Gorka will be here tomorrow as well. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. See you tomorrow. Spread the word. Oh,